I think one of the important things to do is to make a statement as an organization to say, if you're a manager, managing people is the most important thing you do. Welcome to the Changing the World of Work podcast, where we provide insightful, practical content to untangle and demystify workplace change. I'm Karen Plum, Director at Advanced Workplace Associates, where we combine science with nearly 30 years experience helping organizations change the way they work for the better. Many organizations have realized that they need to support managers and teams during the transition to new ways of working, not just to ease the transition, but to take advantage of the opportunity to strengthen vital skills, which will be beneficial regardless of where people are working. We recently ran an event where we discussed ways to upskill managers in this area, and I have two of the speakers with me today. Podcast regulars Philippa Hale, one of AWA's senior associates in workplace change management, and Brad Taylor, AWA's Director of Consulting. Welcome to both of you. Great to see you. Hi, Karen. Hello. So let's dive in. I'd love us to consider two perspectives while we're talking today. What can we do as managers and what organizations can do to help managers navigate this journey and acquire the skills that they need? To get us started, I wanted to play a clip from our event where our speaker said something that I found quite powerful. So our speaker is Sue Warman, Vice President of People at the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. Here's what she said. I think one of the important things to do is to make a statement as an organization to say, if you're a manager, managing people is the most important thing you do. And I think that's a really important frame setter to say, if you don't have time to do everything, or if you have to cut some corners, don't let it be your people that are a corner you cut. Because people tend to have a mindset that's the opposite, that the tasks are more important than the people. You know, I haven't had time to do my team meetings. I haven't had time to do my appraisals, et cetera. And I think that whole paradigm has to be flipped on its head and managers need to be on the hook most definitely. You know, it's not on to have your back to your people if you're a manager. That's not who we are as an organization. That's not good enough. And I think that's a very powerful position to take as an organization. I suspect that kind of thinking and approach isn't commonplace. Do you think it's an easy position for organisations to take, Philippa? No, I don't. It's possible, but it is difficult. If you're in a middle manager position, you absolutely have to know that your senior leadership team have got your back if you make those sorts of choices. How is it possible? I think some open and honest conversations. What can you do to not have your back to your people? I love Sue's image because it just speaks volumes. The whole thing about having your back to your people, I suppose, again, when we've got people in the office and not in the office, it becomes harder or you have to work harder to show that you haven't got your back to your people. These sort of skills, you know, organisations often refer to them as soft skills and and they're not really soft at all. These can be very complicated, difficult things to do as a line manager where you're having to really ensure that you understand every individual in your team and that you're spending time and treating them as an individual and making time for them, as Sue says, rather than just thinking about the tasks that need to be done. And, you know, it's interesting in my career where I've been involved with surveying of line managers and and we speak to them and we say, you know, you have a regular one-to-one with your manager and they'll say, yes, yes. And do you value it? Yes, I value it a lot. And how often do you have one-to-ones with your own team? 
And then the answer is well, less frequent. So even though people, as humans, we all we all like and value our line manager spending time with us, it can be difficult to ensure that as a line manager ourselves, we make the time to devote it to every member of our team so that they feel that we are there, we're accessible. And when they have time with us, that we are clear of mind ourselves to be able to really treat them as special and to listen carefully to what they're saying and be able to focus and add value to them as an individual. But I think it's also important to recognize that not all managers have developed the people skills that they need. So organizations are having to invest in helping them acquire those skills and practice them on the job, probably under quite pressured circumstances. Brad, what sort of approaches have you seen organizations adopt to address that skills gap? Well, that's right, Karen. And often people can find themselves ending up in managerial roles because it's the next step in their career ladder. They've reached a technical expertise. They want to perhaps stay with the organization. And therefore, the only next position is as a line manager uh, without very much thought as to what would that really entail and what skills are needed. And then organizations who adopt those sort of practices for very understandable reasons can suddenly find themselves in a position where they have a cohort of managers who've never been properly trained, coached, or developed in how to do that effectively. But the sort of things that I have seen work well is where organizations take uh, some form of, say, an academy approach to line management. So they start thinking beforehand, what are the training and development conversations and options that we can be putting in place where people can register their interest or demonstrate their interest in being a line manager one day and start working and building the skills to be able to apply for those roles successfully later on when they become available. So that starts embedding those skills at that sort of level. But also then as part of the ongoing succession planning and and leadership development in organizations, taking cohorts of people, identifying where they are on their own particular management journey, and then helping them to develop as a group to challenge one another, to share learning and good practice with one another, is also a very effective way of growing management capability over, over time to more senior leadership roles as well. I think in certainly in the UK and, and possibly in the US as well, from my experience, culturally, we have a tendency to see management training as a little bit of a punishment because we've done something wrong. And equally, even coaching, which is becoming much more um, valuable and prevalent. But do you mean punishment because we feel as newly appointed managers, we should know what we're doing? And yes. therefore, if we need training, we haven't quite got it. And we're, somehow we're not measuring up. That's right. And I think all managers at all levels suffer from imposter syndrome. I know I do. Any new project that I take on. And I think most organisations, there is an element of fear of being found out and fear of not knowing, not being seen to do the right thing and fear of revealing any kind of vulnerability or weakness. And any any conversations around coaching, for example, in organisations that don't have that kind of culture is, you know, is this remedial? Have I done something wrong? Coming back to what Brad was saying, creating that culture of of seeing education and learning about management as a real thing, a real science, a real discipline, a real art. Once you become a manager, you become a member of a community. You're not alone. It's a very lonely place managing a team. It's a very lonely place managing an organization. Just difference of scale. I think organizations that take continual learning seriously, and as Brad said, see the community as a source of that learning. As a coach myself, an executive coach, I have peer supervision. It's part of the structure. I have a mentor, somebody I can go to. And it's real. It's honest. It's it's a genuine connection. It isn't somebody off a list that I've been paired up with. 
tremendously valuable support in a in an environment which can feel quite lonely, particularly if you're battling that imposter syndrome and trying yeah. to look like you know what you're doing. Absolutely. And if you add a blame culture onto that, you've, you've got a, no good reason to take the mask off ever. Yeah. If you're going to work it in a hybrid working culture, you've got to be really aware, first of all, that there are masks. And second, how do you remove them? Yeah. Being a bit more honest and open and being more supportive of each other. Well said. Sue also said that many managers are looking to HR to come up with a policy and a playbook so they can just kind of do that because they aren't certain how to respond in some of the situations. Perhaps they're feeling quite exposed and they don't want to get it wrong. Here she is again. I would suggest that we don't want to get overzealous with policymaking. There's a lot to play out yet frankly, where we'll end up with COVID. So I'm encouraging within my own organisation, let's just create some principles and, you know, and create a sort of vibe in the organisation. This is important. We're going to value each other for putting energy into this. So it's, it's something around the culture you create and what it is you value. But we haven't turned to writing lots of policies because I don't think that will serve us well. I think better to just create some principles and then empower people to use their judgment and make decisions. And then then for us to sort of regularly be trading conversations around, I'm encountering this, you know, how are we handling this elsewhere in the organisation? There's a lot to land yet. So I would caution people not to resort too quickly to finalising policies. It strikes me that this could be quite a scary place to be if you're not used to making those sorts of decisions. It's important to feel the organisation is going to have your back, your manager and people further up the hierarchy. If you prioritise your people over the tasks or over a target or a deadline, are you seeing organisations and managers struggling with this, Philippa? If managers and their teams are looking at the tasks that they have on and thinking about the people side of managing their, the the pastoral side of managing their people as tasks that consume time and need to be scheduled in and aren't just something that you do in between the other stuff. I think that thinking is one of the things that has led to us having back-to-back Zoom calls from morning till night across time zones. And I think that's possibly one of the causes of burnout because you're compounding possibly inaccurate estimating the tasks that are actually needed by leaving out the time that human beings need to communicate, to connect, and to therefore operate at their optimum. Therefore, having to schedule meetings in to fix things that weren't done properly in the first place due to poor communication, due to exhaustion. I'm convinced 30% of, of the work that we do is rework or redirecting teams that weren't given a clear brief perhaps by a manager who who didn't have that clear brief yeah so so hadn't thought it through or hadn't discussed it with them and hadn't realized that they weren't clear about what they were doing so it all comes back to that sort of communication I guess we are in a uncertain confusing complex world and therefore managers may not know the answers And the teams may not know the answers. If they did find the answers to the environment as it is now, then the environment changes. And so it's no longer the right answer. And so some form of peer support or team coaching or activities that involve people talking about precisely that is time well spent because that keeps motivation up. It keeps confidence levels up and it keeps trust up, which, of course, is one of the key factors of Mm -hmm. hybrid working. The other thing I think is really important about the policies is is that to have an optimum, a minimum of structure, and in fairness to Sue, she did say this, principles 
to mm. give managers a little bit of structure, a boundary within yeah. which you can then be more creative. That's the paradox of creativity, sure. isn't it? And if you've got a bit of structure, yeah. it actually gives you more confidence. I agree with what Philip has said, really. I, th- I think there is a tendency with organisations to want to over-codify everything and to put everything in a, in a neat, tidy box. And human nature just doesn't work like that, really, does it? So yeah. I, I think when you think about the role of a leader is very much about... Well, first of all, you're, you're helping to regulate the level of anxiety that the system is feeling. So, you know, your presence can dial it up and you can dial it down. And that's an important role to play. And secondly, it's around how are you helping the members of the team to grow as individuals, and become more self-responsible with greater empowerment, more decisive around what they do. That That's an important part, which goes to the coaching. And therefore, I think it's important that those principles exist, that there's that sense of a North Star that managers in the organisation have this understanding of this is how we do things around here. This is what would be seen as acceptable and what isn't. And I can then interpret that in my behaviour and in my interactions with the individual members of my team so that I'm helping them to, to progress in that way, but also giving clear signals for them as to what's, what's acceptable and what's, what's not acceptable. I've even seen staff in consultation groups say, we need a policy for this. And my response has always been, I don't think you really mean that (laughs) because it won't necessarily help. One policy won't apply to everyone consistently throughout the organisation. There needs to be a principle or an overriding policy, which then managers can use their discretion to interpret and nuance so that it helps the individual and it helps the members of a team to work effectively. Yeah, it's not a blunt instrument you beat people over the head with. No, that's right. (laughs) If you already have a culture of fear and blame, you've probably got a lot of policies because a lot of policies have been put in place to, to, as as Brad said, codified and put things in boxes and stop people straying off them. If you are keen to move away from that, it will be a a, a very gradual process. You cannot suddenly take the boxes away. It leads Mm. to huge anxiety and insecurity. But what you can do is, as you said, Karen, have those principles that we are going to relax the rules and give you a bit more discretion. And senior leadership need to buy into that and give people the opportunity to experiment. And it might be small experiments in something safe and non-controversial and probably not client facing. But it is a start. And you start to create that culture of experimentation. You start to remove the blame culture. You start to need fewer policies. Yes. And as you say, it takes a while because you're having to build up the trust that wasn't there before. Okay. Well, now we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back after this message. As we emerge from the pandemic into the hybrid working world, what does the design of the modern workplace need to incorporate to enable effective working? How should you balance workforce needs with sustainability and cost? I'm Lauren Liga, part of the Advanced Workplace Institute team, and I invite you to join our one-hour workshop on December 8th at 4 p.m. UK time, 11 a.m. U.S. Eastern, and 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific, where we will be exploring these questions and many others associated with effective workplace design in the Destination Workplace, designing the workplace experience for a purpose. We'll be joined by AWA's Director of Consulting and a pioneer in the new ways of working, Chris Hood, and Jervis Tomkin, an expert in real estate strategy and design and founder of Plus Jervis LLC. 
you'll get the opportunity to hear from our panel of experts and share good practice with other attendees. So don't miss this AWI event on December 8th, the Destination Workplace, designing the workplace experience for a purpose. I look forward to seeing you there. Thank you, Lauren. If you're interested in attending the event that Lauren spoke about, there are details in our show notes, so please get in touch. So now I'd like to get your thoughts on another clip from our recent AWI event. Our colleague Lisa Whited picked up on a discussion about making offices more like home, which one of the contributors said his organization was considering. Here's what she said. I think it's also important to remember that everybody's homes are different And the office, well before COVID, only represented often a very narrow view of what an office should be. I say this a lot, but it's based on research, often based on um, heterosexual, white, male, middle age. And there are many others we know that we work with. And so I think it's a great opportunity when you think about what is the office going to be and how do we let everybody be comfortable? That idea of inclusivity really going above and beyond. Um, We know there is code switching. People of color change their hair, change their language to fit in. We've got LGBTQ plus people, 50% remain closeted at work. There are ways to build a really truly inclusive culture. And that's the opportunity through the conversations that, that you all were sharing earlier. Are you seeing this type of approach getting more traction, Brad? Yes, probably not enough though, but I think it absolutely is. Again, we've been presented with such an opportunity to rethink what the workspace looks like and how the workplace is more representative of the wider diversity of people that work within an organisation. And there were a number of things that occurred during lockdown. If we think about the Black Lives Matter, there was so much that hit organisations that they had to sort of really think carefully about and has caused a lot of reflection about how do different people show up in the workplace and what adaptations are they making to the person that they are at home just simply to fit in to the predominant culture within an organisation. So I think now more than ever, organisations should be thinking about how do we really make this workplace representative of everyone, everyone's diverse culture, background, preferences, whether it's not just about ethnicity, but ability, disability, neurodiversity, LGBTQ, all of those things so that people would feel like they really can be their true selves at work. I think would be such a wonderful thing to be able to do. And that, again, takes confidence, courage, you know, the ability to have honest, supportive conversations, to be able to ask questions and to be able to help one another to to work these things through. But now must be the time. It's much more acceptable now to talk about mental health and well-being than it ever was before because the circumstances have presented that to us. Let's keep expanding that to inclusion and belonging as well. And line managers, once again, have such a critical role to play in that both in actually doing it, but role modelling and setting the tone for everyone within their team and their organisation that, again, says these things matter. We're going to spend time talking about them. We're going to explore them. And if we get things wrong, we'll adapt and we'll, we'll work hard to get these things right. 
feels like the pandemic gave us the the great social experiment of, of working away from the office. It's now also giving us the opportunity to write a lot of the the shortcomings and the ills, if you like, of the way we've been operating for a long, long time. I'd like to come back to the subject of managers and something that Sue said that really resonated with me. We will provide you with a toolkit and training and an environment of principles, but it's incumbent on you to sometimes use your judgment within that framework. And we've got your back. And I think that's another part of the culture that's truly important. So sometimes a manager will make a decision within that framework that you might wish they hadn't. And it becomes a learning point and you talk it through, et cetera. You know, that's just the risk you take when you're not following a recipe card. You know, and that's why managers feel a bit exposed. Um, but we need managers to be comfortable taking balanced judgment calls. And we need to create a safe environment for them to do that. And that's the conversation we're having absolutely right now in our organization. Remember, I work for a professional body for accountants. They're looking for an absolute answer. So, and, uh, and I'm saying it depends. For many organizations, used to setting targets, expecting them to be met. And now we're moving into that more sort of murky territory, moving away from the more command and control approach that so many have been operating in. And now we're asking managers to make much more use of their discretion. Does Mm. that feel like scary territory to you, Philippa? Yes, it does, because we as managers are targeted and we have objectives and we're measured and you know we might get a percentage of the pot allocated to bonuses or we might not because we're in a system that perpetrates and and encourages us to focus on quite artificial objectives in that way it's a big ask to ask managers and and whole um, organization cultures to shift into a more systemic approach to looking at how they're operating and what they're creating and what they're producing. There's a legacy culture of some kind that we're battling against here in that the the managers often think that now I'm a manager, I've got to have all the answers to everything and scramble around trying to prove that they have the answers or talk about having the answers. But also I think it's very easy for people in the team to think, well, you're my manager, what can I learn from you? And that creates an additional pressure on that line manager. Oh my, oh my gosh, this person wants to learn something from me. What have I got to teach? And that ties into all the imposter syndrome stuff we spoke about earlier on as well that, that goes yeah. hand in hand with that. And I think we've got to create managers and leaders who are so much more comfortable with just asking questions and listening and, and helping the individuals in their team just to explore and to grow to enable managers just to pause just for a moment and be very clear about actually where does the problem lie? You know, who has the problem here? And how can you help that person think through the problem and get to the answers without taking on the problem yourself and trying to solve it all for them? And in the same instance, completely disempowering that person. You know, if you overfunction, they're going to underfunction. And then don't expect that to change anytime soon unless you change your own behavior. Just to finish off, if there was one thing you'd advise managers to do more of, even if they're already doing it to some degree, what would it be? Oh, so many things. I think it would be spend more time asking a person how they are and genuinely mean it. So, you know, when you have your one-to-one with that individual, just take time at the outset. How are you? How are your family? 
because that just means so much to people, I think, being able to feel comfortable to open up and talk about what's going on in your world, know that you're going to be listened to, and then your line manager's got your back and is there to support you, um, work through all the other things. The other things will fall in place if you can get that relationship piece right. Yes, and as I heard somebody say today, showing vulnerability builds trust, not the other way around. Absolutely. So show your vulnerability first, that will build trust. You know, you don't have to be vulnerable, but, you know, as a manager, you need to ask the question, as you say, and then listen to the answer. We're all human and just be comfortable with that. Have that dialogue. So Philippa, just one thing. I'm going to use the same word as Brad in a different context, ask. Ask, don't tell. And that applies to the task work as well. If your team asks you how you do something, ask them how they suggest you do it. Don't tell them. So if you adopt that one strategy, you won't get in your own way and you won't get in their way. That's it. You'll keep batting it back to them to encourage deeper thinking from them and empower them. Yeah. Wonderful. I think those are really great ideas. And I think that's a good place to finish. So thank you very much, Philippa and Brad, for coming on the show and sharing all of your wonderful thoughts and uh, expertise with us today. Thanks, Karen. You're very welcome. Thanks, Karen. And that's it for this episode. See you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Changing the World of Work podcast. Please follow or like the show so you don't miss any of our content. You can find more information on this episode in our show notes including a link to the AWA website if you'd like to know more about us. Hope to see you next time. Goodbye.